Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. On Opinionated Science, our team of scientists turned journalists take a deep dive into the weirdest and most fascinating research we can mine from the mountainous peak of published research. I'm Rory McKenzie, a senior science writer at TN, and today I'm joined by my colleagues Lucy Lawrence and Kate Robinson. How are you both? Very great, thanks. How are you? Yes, all good today. Excited to get into the fascinating studies we have lined up. So uh, Lucy is going to tell us a bit about what we can learn uh, about trauma from identical twins. And Kate is going to tell us a bit about the personality traits of night owls and what do you call them? Morning, morning larks, morning people. <laughs> I'm, I'm not one of them, but we'll, we'll find out about them later. Uh, first off, I'm going to discuss an interesting study that has given a sneak peek into the future of spinal implants and a, a potential route towards combating chronic pain. Now, for a bit of context, uh, anyone who's you know sat listening to this podcast, maybe at a computer, has probably felt a bit of back pain in the past. And for many of us, a brief stretch or a walk or spending you know a stupid amount of money on a modular desk can help that. Uh, for many other millions of people, including up to apparently 8% of the US population, simple solutions just don't cut it because these people suffer from intractable back pain, which is where commonly used solutions such as painkillers or um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs no longer work at treating the pain. So um, for these individuals, generally the therapeutic routes are go down one of two routes. So either stronger medications, stronger painkilling drugs, and of course, in the early 2000s, we saw the kind of catastrophe that came from that um, when physicians kept prescribing uh, opioid drugs, which led to a, an addiction epidemic. So um, the other route, which is hopefully uh, more promising, is by using electrical stimulation methods. Now, the aim of these stimulation methods is to essentially interrupt the signals sent from the spinal cord to the brain, telling uh, the brain that there's some kind of pain. Now, obviously, in um, acute situations, like if you bang your knee, it's quite important that your brain finds out there is pain, so it stops doing the thing that's causing it. But in chronic pain, these signals obviously start disrupting everyday life, even when there's no stimulus to be wary of. So um, by disrupting these signals, uh, the aim of the stimulation is to mask the pain. Often, um, users of these stimulation methods report that the pain is kind of masked by a kind of tingling sensation, which is much preferable to, to chronic agonizing pain. So um, we'll take a look at the kind of devices that are currently used to achieve this method. Now, they fall into broadly two categories. Uh, one are electrode paddle devices. Now, these are implanted into the epidural space in the spinal cord. So this is between the, the vertebrae themselves and something called the dura, which is like a sort of thin skin-like layer that protects the, the vertebrae. So the paddles go into this space, the epidural space, and um, they, they spread over the, the spinal cord and are able to cover quite a large uh, area of it and then uh, attached um, electrical, essentially battery produces signals. Um, it's generally implanted in, say, the hip um, um, in a separate operation. And once the paddle is implanted and a calibration process goes on between the physician and patient, generally this is the most effective way of um, masking the pain because uh, the paddles cover such a large area of the spinal cord that they can quite 
adequately provide this electrical stimulation. Now, the problem with this is that to implant one of these paddles is a really invasive operation. And for many people who are suffering with chronic pain, and these stimulators are used for other, for other forms of chronic pain, even angina, for example, the paddles are useful, but the operation is so severe that frailer patients can't undergo the operation. Now, uh, the alternative is to implant a wire-like device. Now, um, these devices go in through keyhole surgery, which is much preferable and patients can um, undergo the surgery much more easily. But unfortunately, um, the device is styled in a way, so think of a, a long thin wire as opposed to a wide paddle, um, that means that the, the stimulation is much less targeted towards the spinal cord. It goes in 360 degrees around the wire and therefore there's a lot of untargeted stimulation, which means the, the effectiveness is reduced and also the wire can move around inside um, a patient's back after implantation, which um, can further reduce the effectiveness of the device. So each has its own drawbacks right now. So um, researchers at the University of Cambridge have been working to produce a device that is the best of both worlds. And what they've come up with is, I think, really an inflatable, ingenious idea. So their plan was to create a device that uh, can be implanted using the surgery of a wire-based device but then inside the back expands to offer the coverage of a paddle-like electrode. So what they came up with was an incredibly thin, 60 micron thin combination of microelectronics and fluidics. Now, um, it just looks like a sort of thin, the surface of a semiconductor, um, but it's made of this soft robotics material that means it can be wrapped up essentially and, and implanted via needle into a, a patient's epidural space. So. Um, once it's inside, it can then be connected to a combination of air and water and be inflated inside the patient's back where it adopts this um, paddle-like configuration. Now, the authors are, are excited about this, but we should stress it's in a very early phase. So in a recent study, which is the, the one I'm going to link in today's show notes, you can read about the implant where they have shown it working in vitro, so outside the body, but also in a cadaver model where they've put it inside a, a cadaver's um, spinal cord and shown that um, it does indeed work as intended, which is, um, you know, it's obviously the first um, important step to make sure the, the physics of the device and the engineering works, but there's going to be a long process to get this to uh, pass safety studies and be used in humans. But the, the authors have an ambitious timeline. And I spoke to Dr. Christopher Proctor from the University of Cambridge, who hopes that they'll be ready for first in-human clinical trials in three years' time. So I'll be following this carefully because it seems that a device like this has kind of limitless potential because um, although I've, I've mentioned back pain mainly, um, if this could treat even a, a fraction of the estimated billion people worldwide who suffer from some kind of chronic pain disorder, uh, it would be a, a real medical marvel. And Proctor doesn't believe that it will be suitable for everyone. Uh, you know, it still involves this this surgery. But even if you know, a, you know, a fraction of that huge number of people can be benefited by this kind of technology, it could mean that a technique that was previously the reserve of only about 100,000 people a year, despite that huge number of people suffering from this condition. Um, you know, it could be a, a very exciting, stimulating future for uh, this area. So what do we think? I love this because film, 
Like thin film electronics aren't new, but incorporating the fluid chambers is what makes it so unique and exciting. And I, I've been reading about this as well, actually. Um, but I saw that it could also be adapted into a potential treatment for paralysis or Parkinson's disease, um, you know, further down the line, probably much further down the line. But it's that aspect as well, which is so exciting. Yeah, I mean, things like fibromyalgia, obviously there aren't like loads of effective treatments for that. And that's a lot of pain and that disorder. Yeah, absolutely. These areas of the body are, are so hard to access. And, you know, when uh, I saw the diagrams of, of where they're targeting this tiny space, you know, it's amazing that we can treat anything in that space in the first place. But, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense that for the, the conditions um, we've mentioned so far, although fibromyalgia, I know Kate does tend to target um younger especially women and there's a huge unmet clinical need there but for conditions like parkinson's for example you know the, the patients that are being affected are, are those that are least likely to be able to undergo a, a really invasive operation which is clearly mm -hmm. what's all that's been offered up until now so um yeah i think i think we, it will take a while and you know it's it's all well and good showing it in um you know like they did a, a cadaver and, and had all the, the pictures of all opened up and showing it inside which were you know, a bit unsettling, but really amazing <laughs> when you think about it. That um, you know they've they've implanted it without sight and then <laughs> seen that it's all <laughs> appeared in the right place. So there's there's still the safety studies to go, but I, I think it is really cool work. Mm. Yeah, definitely want to watch. So I think Kate, you were going to tell us about some personality studies of yes. night owls and, and morning larks. Before we get started, wh what are we? What are we what are we? Are we are, are we early risers? Are we night owls? Do you know what? I'm a bit of both, I think. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> See, this study got me thinking about that, and I was thinking, I'm not really sure anymore. It's hard to kind of pinpoint. I don't think I'm either. I think I have a productive hour somewhere in the middle of the day after I've eaten lunch, <laughs> and then that's that. <laughs> Is there a bird that does that? <laughs> Some kind of really sleepy chicken? That's me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Kate, tell us about what these researchers have found out at the uh, at the University of Warwick. So early birds are people who wake up naturally, um, kind of early morning, feel really productive in those early hours. It's kind of stereotypical, but people who say, get up, go for a jog, have a shower, and then this is all before work. Um, and then night owls, on the other hand, are people who really struggle getting up in the morning, but have that like boost of productivity later in the evening. Um, and the study that I researched, um, we're delving into the possible factors that can influence whether someone is an early bird or a night owl. And the researchers were from the University of Warwick and the University of Tartu. And they were analysing the relationship between sleep timing, which they referred to as the chronotype, um, the preference to morning or evening and personality traits. So... In order to investigate the relationships, um, participants were recruited and they completed questionnaires on their personal sleep timings and personality. And someone else who knew them also answered questions about their personality to get a fuller picture. And along with this, they, the researchers used large genome-wide association studies of personality and sleep preferences to determine genetic correlations. Um, and from these studies into personality and the chronotypes, it was found that 
people who had the earlier chronotypes or the early birds, they were associated with having higher conscientiousness and lower openness. And they were also more likely to be less straightforward, less excitement seeking, but more self-disciplined. And the opposite association was found for the later chronotypes. And the research has developed two pathways for this influence that personality could have on chronotype. The first one being that personality traits could shape an individual's preference for social activity and behavior, which then has an impact on sleeping time. So, for example, if you really enjoy going down the club, you know, they don't open until later at night. Therefore, yeah, you're going to be awake later. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, inverse, you could have really, you could really enjoy swimming in the sea at 6 a.m., you know. <laughs> I don't know why you'd want to do that. But. <laughs> uh, and the second pathway was that personality may influence active decisions people make. So making an active decision to go to bed early if you have to get up for work or something like that. But the, it's unsure if the influence is mutual or if it is chronotype influence influencing personality. So the other way. So if someone was naturally a night owl, that could influence their personality, causing them to be more excitement seeking, less disciplined, you know. Uh, and ultimately, in the study, there it was found that the relationship between personality and a preference for either morning or evening were partly due to genetic factors. But the findings also suggested that it may be possible to change your chronotype or train yourself into more socially convenient sleep schedules by increasing self-control and someone may shift to an earlier chronotype but still have that evening preference so that's the study was done over kind of the weekday to and the weekend to encompass what's socially acceptable obviously a lot of people don't work at the weekend so those kind of sleep schedules will change and that allowed for the researchers to be able to see if the preference was different to the chronotype and also the chronotype is affected by circadian rhythms, the light-dark cycle. So another way that someone might be able to switch from a later chronotype to an earlier one could be turning off any artificial light earlier, which obviously is quite a... The circadian rhythms and stuff like that is quite a well-researched topic. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that research was really interesting because personally, uh, I used to to work the night shift, uh, which was hell on earth, but... (laughs) (laughs) i would say that uh getting up at 2 a.m and not getting to bed until 8 a.m is quite different (laughs) to what like what i'm doing now and uh so probably i would say that i have had a big switch from night owl to early bird but it makes me wonder if perhaps if someone changes that chronotype do you think that that would change their personality based on this kind of study yeah it's really interesting so to ask it, how did you find, like, how long does it take for you to switch? Because those are quite different hours, right? Like, how, how, how long did it take you to feel oh, yeah. comfortable in the new configuration? <laughs> Probably about three or four months. That's quite a long time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but I was feeling really unwell when I was um, having to get up that, you know, middle of the night. But that is quite a common thing, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think people usually work patterns as well, don't they? Because I think probably businesses are trying to cater towards that, that you have a week of nights and then you have a week of sort of normal life. And then yeah. just as you're getting to the end of that week, <laughs> you're coming back around it, then you're going back yeah. into your night. So yeah. Yeah. What if, what if you're naturally a night owl, but you have a, a cat that wakes you up super early like me? <laughs> you're you're yeah. slave to the sleep I don't have the answer to <laughs> yeah no it's fascinating that you you think that personality type would be so much more durable but in this study they didn't have a look and see if their personality had changed after if if they changed their chronotype right that wasn't something they looked at here i I don't believe they did so (laughs) that would have been interesting maybe a (laughs) follow-up yeah but uh i i don't know from from what from what you mentioned I, i think it was you know what were they saying about morning larks, morning early risers, that they were less open, more conscientious, yeah, more disciplined? That that seems, you know, especially that last one seems about right. If you can discipline yourself to, especially where I live, and get up in darkness six months of the year, then you're, you know, <laughs> you're well on the way to being fully disciplined in your life. <laughs> so I think our final study we want to discuss today is from Lucy, and it's a really interesting one, Lucy, looking at the relationship between um, twins, epigenetics and, and trauma. Do you want to take us through it? Yeah, so essentially what I'm going to talk about today is a pretty exciting link between post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD and migraine. And before now, scientists have obviously known that PTSD and migraines often co-occur, but no one had really looked deeper to see if there was a specific link between the two. So, which I think is a little crazy anyway but to take it back to basics PTSD is uh, an anxiety disorder that's caused by very stressful or frightening or like distressing events and someone that has PTSD often finds themselves reliving the traumatic event through nightmares or flashbacks or both Um, and it can feel really isolating and you can feel really irritable or guilty that you're you're feeling these feelings Um, and you might also have problems with sleeping like insomnia um, and you're finding it really difficult to concentrate so it's kind of an all-consuming thing that can be caused from this traumatic experience and throughout your life um, you, you do have traumatic experiences like you could have a life-threatening event and most people will experience a traumatic event at some point in their lives unfortunately in one form or another but the vast majority of people won't actually develop PTSD so there is something special to say about those who do Um, and those who live with PTSD are more likely to experience migraine headaches which was suggestive that there could be this link between the two conditions and that's why people started looking into it and so in the latest study that I'm talking about it's from Australia and it studies our genes and suggests that they might actually hold the answer for the link between the two and more specifically like you said Rory it might be an epigenetic link Um, so now I don't know how much you or our listeners know about epigenetics but essentially epigenetics is how your behavior and your environment can cause changes to the way that the genes work so unlike genetic changes your epigenetics are reversible so they don't actually change your DNA sequence but they do change how your body um, reads the DNA sequence so if you take for example identical twins they have the same genes but their different experiences will actually result in different epigenetic changes in each person so 
Anyway, the researchers used this phenomenon in twins to see which genes were showing some sort of change in PTSD and the same in migraines to really see if two different conditions shared these epigenetic changes. Um, I should also mention that they found six pairs of twins who wanted to be involved in the study um, where both twins had experienced a traumatic event but only one of each pair of the twins lived with PTSD so <laughs> it's a pretty niche area as you can imagine. It's so, taking ages to find them. I was thinking how have they done this um, but the sample size was never going to be large because of this um, but because, like I said, all identical twins share all of their DNA, but not their epigenetics, the study is still actually pretty powerful despite that. Um, and then they also had 15 pairs of twins where only one was suffering from migraines. And essentially, they took the blood from the twins in each group and studied them to see which epigenetic changes were linked to PTSD or the migraines. Um, and to cut to the chase here, basically, the study showed that certain genes are similarly affected in PTSD and migraine, which suggested that there could be some shared risk factors, which is pretty exciting because it explains why PTSD and migraine can co-occur co pretty often. Um, and it really shows that there might be a common environmental risk between them both for both PTSD and migraine. Um, so, you know, after I was reading this, I was really thinking, OK, but what does this mean for people living with PTSD or migraines or both? Um, and I think to kind of get to the bottom of it, it really means that the genes and epigenetic changes that the researchers identified could be used to form new treatments, which really could be life changing. Um, and epigenetic changes, like I've mentioned, can actually be reversed. So they're a pretty great drug target, which, yeah, I just think it's truly fascinating. I don't know what you guys think. That is a really interesting study. I think six pairs of twins who have experienced that traumatic event but only one of them lives that's to me is a large number of twins to find mm -hmm. in that really specific circumstance but yes it really interesting study yeah it's it's it it really is interesting this the the link between uh, our environment and our genes because you know I, I i have had it pointed out to me in the past that with identical twin studies you know they it's ruling out any genetic uh, contribution whatsoever because they say oh, mm. they're, they're they're identical um but you know it, it's so hard to untangle what is what is genetic and, and what is environmental when um people have had shared um shared experiences growing up you know i mean some some studies go this extra extra mile and seem to find identical twins that have I don't know, <laughs> gone into uh, separate homes for example so they're born together and then I don't know separated at, at birth and all this like mm. it, it, it's really amazing mm. the, the, the 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 breadth of these uh recruitment ads you know like how <laughs> yeah uh, but no it, it's it's such a, a an area that needs research um and you know people from all backgrounds of life uh live with PTSD for all sorts of reasons um so any any research that can go towards you know teasing out like it could could some therapy um mm -hmm. target these epigenetic changes to to reverse them um to make you know people with uh, with these conditions feel them less strongly that'd be that'd be really amazing mm -hmm. i wonder if any twins exist who have experienced a traumatic event one of them has pdsd and that person also experiences migraines 
The, the, the search begins now. It's really putting the odds down, but... <laughs> But that you, like it's a good point, isn't it? Because if you are, um, if you've got twins. They're both experiencing a traumatic event, but you both have your own perspective. So even though you're yeah. going through that trauma together, in a way, you're kind of not because you're experiencing it completely differently from a different point of view, potentially. Yeah. So there's so many different factors to kind of consider. But yeah, I just thought it was super interesting. No, absolutely. Well, thank you, Lucy, and thank you, Kate, for sharing these fascinating studies with us on opinionated science. Um, yeah, and as always, we'll be back in a couple of Fridays' time with a, a new episode and more science to discuss. But for now, that's all from us. So thank you for joining us. And wherever you're listening, please do like, share, subscribe, and comment on our podcast. Please don't keep your opinions to yourself. Bye for now.